How you guys doing? Woo. <laughs> Dude, the, the few, the proud, the, the few, the proud, the brave. You guys are here. Memorial Day weekend. Here, ready for church outdoors, ready to do this. Uh, ready to dive into Romans chapter 7 uh, for the second time in two weeks. So if you guys were here last week, we had a uh, classic church, uh, rained out, rain delay uh, situation. And uh, so, yeah, if you guys are about to turn to Romans chapter 7, we've been in Romans for about three ish months now. And, um, and if you've been with us, uh, to kinda, if you want to get caught up to speed, uh, the first three chapters, Paul is making a case for what is wrong with the world we live in. Um, you can read the Bible, but you also can just read a blog uh, to, to, and just read your own heart to know that something is wrong with this world. Uh, we've known that for a very long time. And Paul is saying, um, this is what's actually going on in this world. It's the fact that we have been, um, uh, we, we've had a fractured relationship with God, that we were created to know God and love God and be with him, to, to love God and love people, uh, that that relationship was fractured. And the fruit of that has been a lot of brokenness in our life and in our families and in our communities and in our nations and in our world. And then in chapters 3 through 4, Paul describes how we can be reconciled to God uh, by putting our faith or trusting in Jesus to make us right with God. The, the idea that we are justified by faith would be the theological phrase for, for what he describes. That we're made right with God, we're reconciled to God, and, and and if the root of all of our problems is that our relationship with God was, was fractured, Paul would say that the start of all the solutions has to do with our reconciliation. And then from chapter 3 on, it's as if God has changed everything uh, so quickly. Uh, I spent the last week, I literally just got back like 15 minutes ago, um, uh, was in Lake Tahoe uh, with my sons and some friends. And, um, and what was crazy about this week in Lake Tahoe was the first three days, the first two and a half days were very hot. I actually have kid, videos of my kids paddleboarding. It looks kind of like Hawaii, uh, warm, beautiful, da, da, da. And then, then like 30 hours later, I've got sled footage in the snow. Uh, I went from trying to find a pair of trunks at a uh, sporting goods store to trying to find gloves so my kids could get into snowball fights and not freeze their hands off. Like in an instant, everything change. And Paul says, even in more dramatic fashion, everything has changed at the coming of Jesus. Everything has changed at us being reconciled to him by faith. That it really is the beginning of everything changing. And so we've been reconciled to God. And then in Romans chapter 5, Paul begins to unpack the benefits of being reconciled to God. Um, in other words, if we've been made right with God, what difference does it make for those who have been justified and as Paul laid out, right, we're made, righteous by, by, we're made righteous based on faith apart from the law. It raises two important questions that you, um, that he's assuming his original audience would ask. And almost like, uh, again, if a politician or an athlete or someone was going to do a press conference during a really obvious tumultuous, tumultuous time in their life, like we know, like, like a PR team would say, we know these three topics are going to come up at the press conference. We need to prep for these questions. And in that way, Paul does that. Uh, and, and these are the questions, you know, Paul, 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 if we're made right, righteous by, if we're made right with God by faith, and it doesn't have to do with our moral performance, um, what does that mean for sin? Should we just go ahead and sin then? Like, is it not a big deal? So first set of questions have to do with, does sin matter then? Like, like if I'm not going to be in trouble, does it matter? And then two, Paul, 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 if we aren't made right by the law, do you think it doesn't have any value anymore? And again, his original audience, especially his Jewish audience, would have cared about that. And so um, two weeks ago, he answered that first question of Romans 6 where he unpacked um, that a benefit of us being made right with God is that we've been set free from sin's power, that we are not only just justified, but that we can start to be sanctified. 
And, and we saw that the fruit of sin or trusting in something other than Jesus is that it will always let us down and will always ruin us. He goes, so, so it's not that God's going to punish you if you sin now if you're in Christ. It's just that you're going to lose, right? It's not that, it's, it, it's not that um, you're going to be in trouble. It's just that it's going to be a, a terrible life. And, and we saw the fact that through the work of Jesus for us in the gospel that we can walk free. That sin's not just a random religious moral thing. It's like, it's, it's the opposite of living as God designed us as his family. Walking in freedom and joy and peace and love and, and patience. And so in Romans 6, uh, Paul starts by describing why we struggle so much with sin. Um, and now um, in chapter 7, he's going to move into a space um, where he's going to... He, He's essentially going to, the arguments are going to dovetail, right? So, so last week he said, hey, we are now dead to sin. We don't have to sin anymore. We've been set free. And on top of that, he's going to talk about how the, how the law plays into that, all right? So he's going he's gonna to essentially try to answer both questions. Now, if you guys were here last week, you've already heard part of this. Uh, I'm trying to move through it quickly. Um, but, but I do want to say this, that the reality is, is that there is still a wrestle that you and I have. Uh, church does not exist for good people, uh, good moral people. Oftentimes, if I talk to people who are not yet followers of Jesus, they'll often say, oh, man, the reason I go to church is I'm not good enough. Uh, and I go, well, that, that's weird because the minute you're good enough, like church just won't work for you. Uh, it's like saying, man, I don't really go to, ho- I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not healthy enough to go to the hospital. It's like, well, once you're healthy, you don't need a hospital. Um, and so in the same way, um, this is a space for people who need grace, who are in need of current restoration, not just past restoration. And, and so... The reality is, is that we will continue to struggle in this life. We are being set free, but it's not done yet. And so uh, today I kind of want to look at this idea of why we struggle to change so much, um, what's going on in us. And I have two points, uh, the same two points from last week. Um, you'll get the fir- same first half, then you get an amazing second half. You get an ending you're just, you just didn't get. Um, I kind of feel like you started a movie and you fell asleep. Um, and then you're going to rewatch it with the ending, okay? So, um, again, if you guys have Bibles, Romans chapter 7, I have two points, uh, and they are this. There is something that can never change us. Point number one is there is something that can never change us. And number two, there is someone who will change us. So number one, there is something that can never change us. Number two, there is someone who will change us. Number one, there is something that can never change us. And the something that can never change us is the law. Okay, kind of religious rules, uh, the standard you seek to live by. Now, back in Paul's day, as a super religious Jewish leader, he would have assumed that the way to change is by obeying the law. Like, just tell people the rules, uh, and they'll follow them, right? Uh, But that doesn't work. That doesn't work for my kids. Uh, That doesn't work for anyone I know. Doesn't work in (laughs) geopolitics. Doesn't doesn't work anywhere, right? But Paul would have thought, man, just write down the rules, memorize the rules, do the rules, and you'll change. But Paul's going to say in a second, the law is valuable, but it cannot change us on its own, right? So Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 1, it says, Since I am speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then if she is married to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is freed from that law. Then if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress, right? Now, this, this text might seem kind of random or kind of weird uh, when you consider what I just talked about. But Paul, 
is using the imagery of marriage to communicate something about both our change and our new relationship to the law. Uh, this familiar audience would have been pretty familiar with the scriptures, and he says, you guys know, according to the teaching of the scriptures, a woman or a man is not allowed to end their marriage with the exception of an egregious sin on the part of the other spouse. Uh, think adultery, abuse, abandonment. Um, if you end up with another man or another woman and those things have not happened, uh, and you end up with another person, he's saying you'd be an adulterer or an adulteress. But he says uh, another legitimate righteous way for a marriage to end is if one of the spouses dies, okay? But as long as someone's spouse is living, as long as no egregious sin has taken place, everyone else should be off limits to that person in a romantic uh, way, right? They're bound to them until death. Now, Paul says, um, imagine uh, this kind of a marriage, okay? Uh, he says, imagine a wife is married to a husband, and last week I called him Mr. Perfect, okay? Uh, he's perfect in every way, um, and, and, but, but the problem with it is he's not loving. The problem with it is he's impotent. He cannot change you or, or help you bear fruit, and so he, he's a demanding husband. He's always pointing out what you don't do right. And by the way, it isn't just his preferences he points out. He actually is right, right? Like, like so many arguments come down to like our preferences. Like you think you're right. They think they're right. And a lot of the times it's kind of gray. It's never gray with him. He is right. You are wrong. So imagine a husband who is never wrong. And on top of that, imagine a husband who never helps you improve in the areas you are weak. He never lifts a finger. In this marriage, you always feel condemned, guilty. By the way, again, Paul isn't describing like marriage counseling here. Like, okay, if I need to get out of this marriage, I need to find a way for someone to die, okay? It's an illustration. Paul's describing how something works spiritually with this illustration. He's saying the law shows us what is wrong with us. It's like being married to that husband who's always pointing out what's wrong. And by the way, again, he's talking God's law from the Old Testament, but secular people have a law they live according to. You have a standard. You have a I need to be or achieve or do this to be right, to prove that I have value uh, or worth. And so um, Paul says, in their case, and maybe in your case now, he says, you were married to that, that thing that was the center of your life, that standard you could never live up to. It was how you established your identity. It's what told you things were going to be okay in the future. It's, 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 it's kind of what you lived for. And again, it could be a religious law, like if you're a good enough Christian, have I memorized enough scripture? Have I given enough away? Have I shared the gospel with enough people? Have I served the poor enough? Um, have I, you know, forgiven people, you know, on and on and on. Have I done this stuff the Bible says to do well enough? Um, or it could be like a completely secular law. Like I need to um, make a certain amount of money by this time. Or I need to, um, or I need to, to look a certain way, right? I need to, I have a, a body goal, a fitness goal, a financial goal, a, a, a goal for what my relationship should look like at this point in my life. But it's something that we fail to live up to. And here's the thing is, is rules or standards can never change us. They can aid in transformation, which Paul's going to talk about, but they don't change us in and of themselves. Now, this marriage is exhausting. He's always telling you you're wrong. He's, he's always right. He never helps you, right? And the question is, is, is there a way out, right? Like what if, and you might be wondering, like, is Paul going to say that the law dies, right? Like what if Mr. Perfect dies, what if he gets in a car accident? What if he, what if he drowns? What if he, you know, whatever, he contracts, a, a, whatever it is. Um, 
But according to the Bible, that's never going to happen. That's the real bummer of the situation. Jesus says in Matthew 5.18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. And all things are everything pertaining to what Jesus came to do, which would include his second coming. So you're married to this critical, fault-finding husband who never lifts a finger to help you. And on top of that, he is immortal. He is never going to die and essentially, you are stuck in a dead-end relationship. But Paul says something wild has happened that has provided a way out of this impossible relationship with the law. It's not that the law dies. It's that we die. Uh, Romans 7, 4 says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. In other words, we died so the relationship has ended. Uh, Benjamin Franklin once said, nothing can be said to be certain but death in taxes, right? We just had tax day a few weeks ago. Um, but you know when taxes are no longer certain after you die. You, you don't know if you're dead. And so he says, you know who doesn't have to obey the law? Dead people, right? Driving back down from Lake Tahoe, right? The speed limit was a, it was a weird moral conundrum for me. Uh, I was really struggling on, on you know, long stretches of two-lane road. Uh, to not speed too much. And he's like, you know who doesn't have to obey the speed limit? Dead people. You know who has no obligation to the law? Dead people. And you have died, which means you are no longer married to the, law, to the law. You died with Jesus and rose again with Jesus, which also means you've changed husbands. And this next husband, he is similar but very different. He is perfect, but the way he interacts with us is, is wildly different. All right, 7 verse 4, read again. It says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. We have a new husband, and his name is Jesus. He's Mr. Perfect 2.0. Um, he is also perfect. He is also always right. It's always your fault in the relationship when things aren't going well. But he doesn't use that knowledge of being perfect, always being right, to condemn you. He uses that knowledge to build you up. This husband's constantly helping you, serving you, forgiving you. He gently challenges you for your own good. He starts building you up and encouraging you. In other words, he starts to transform you. And with him, you can actually bear fruit for God. As you get closer and closer to him, um, something happens. And this is where change really starts to happen. Keep going in verse 5. It says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. Again, different kind of fruit. But now we've been released from the law since we died to what held us, that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. So now Paul's definitely anticipating the question I mentioned before. Paul, so are you saying that, you know, you're saying that we died to the law. So are you saying the law is bad? Is, is the standard bad? I mean, you said he was a bad husband. Are you trying to get us to avoid God's commands, to kind of live a life of 
licentiousness and disobedience. And Paul's now going to respond to that question and make it clear that he still very much appreciates the law, but for a very different reason than his, his hypothetical question askers uh, might appreciate the law. Verse 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 7 says, What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, do not covet. Right? So the law's first purpose, again, is to reveal how sinful we are. It's like a mirror. Right? Have you ever, like, um, uh, looked in the mirror and been like, dang, that's not what I wanted to see. Your hair is just not what you thought it looked like. There's something in your teeth. You got some kale in your teeth. Got a little aggressive with your salad at lunch. Maybe you've gained weight or, or a shirt fits weight. Whatever it is, like, like you look and you just see something that you don't personally don't want to see. And, and the law, it, it, sh- it does that. It shows us, man, this is who you really are. Like if you stack yourself up against the Ten Commandments, this is, you never do this perfectly. And Jesus says, do you live it out in, in your heart? So it reveals to us God's standard of holiness, goodness, justice, and love. It shows us what a healthy person looks like, a godly person, uh, a loving person looks like. And so he says, man, um, he, he, we'll get into it right now, I guess. Um, the law essentially says, um, this is what it looks like to be perfected. Like if you were walking in this, uh, you'd be walking into a life of love. But Paul goes, man, um, the law showed me that that wasn't the case for me especially for a guy who was really into external obedience, all right? So, so we see verse 8. It says, verse 8, And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again, and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and, though it, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good become death, death to me? Absolutely not. But sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. Now, how many of you guys, um, you're, you know exactly what he's talking about when I read that? Like, sorted, really clear. All right, you're going to make me explain it. Okay, all right, all right. Yeah, no, it, it's confusing, right? Like, it's like, dude, there's, he uses so many, he uses a lot of phrases that sound similar, but then they're a little bit different, and it feels like he's contrasting something, but it's hard to know what it is, and um, I'm, I'm really comforted by Peter's writing, Peter's letters, where he says, Paul's letters are hard to understand, okay? Uh, the Bible itself says that, okay? So that's, that's good news, but we can't understand what it's saying here, okay? When Paul says in verse 9 that he once lived apart from the law, he meant that before um, before he had really thought through this idea of coveting, right? And he says this in other places. He thought he was a pretty amazing guy, right? He's like, um, uh, like spiritually, uh, I'm a dope guy. I do dope stuff. I'm perfect. No one is on my spiritual level, right? He's a Pharisee. He's really committed to external obedience. He looked at himself and thought, man, I'm a pretty good person, right? I don't commit adultery. Um, I'm not out here worshiping idols. I observe the Sabbath faithfully. I care for my parents, but then something in the Ten Commandments pops up, you know, thou shalt not covet. And here's the thing about coveting. When do you know that it's happened? 
Like, if I were to walk up right now to Amtakeda, sorry, I'm picking up, and I just go, hey, man, I know you're coveting that guy a second ago. You know, what he had. Like, how, how would I know, right? Now, now, here's why this commandment's probably important for a guy like Paul, is he's like, externally, I'm doing all the right stuff. Coveting's like a heart sin. But you can know it happens. It's a little, it's a little, a little more tactile than, like, pride. It's kind of like, like, like it happens in your hearts. And Paul starts to realize that even though all his external, external conformity to the other commandments, he had, like, his behavior had been pretty good, um, he did not obey this command. He was often very envious of what others wanted. He wanted to stand out um, in his worlds. Um, to make matters worse, um, some people have pointed out that, that a lot of other sins are essentially tied to coveting, right? So, um, uh, like, the reformers and stuff, they would talk to this idea that, it's like St. Augustine or Martin Luther or someone, but, but they point out the idea that, um, that a lot of sin is ultimately connected to coveting, right? So, like, why does anyone steal? You want that thing you don't have. You're coveting that thing. Uh, why do you lie? Often it's to, you exaggerate or you're trying to cover up uh, to get that thing that you want. Why commit adultery? You want to be with a person that's off limits to you. You, you coveted someone's uh, wife or husband or their stuff. And Paul saw that he was guilty at the heart of this sin. And again, you see this twist in Paul's story in the book of Acts. He's like advancing in Judaism. He's, he's, he's you know, beyond his years, he says. And he's out there and he's even persecuting the church. And in a way, it's like to make a name for himself. He's even being like commissioned, like go persecute the church. Here's a letter, go do your thing. Um, he's like, man, when they want someone to stamp out this terrible movement, man, they pick me. Like I'm crushing it in my, um, kind of in my fields. And that actually what, what, what fueled his like sin or what fueled his, even his sense of righteousness was, was coveting or was uh, wanting to, to be, um, wanted to take from others that he might be someone, okay? Um, and the problem with like going hard on religion and stuff like that is it makes you even more insecure. It makes you less confident in your relationship with God. It makes you um, more afraid. Um, it, it's, um, it doesn't change your hearts, and you often are grasping for the same stuff. Think about like the story of the prodigal son. At the end of that story, you see that, yeah, the first guy was like, man, I hate you. I'm out here. I'm going to go do my own thing, and I'm going to go, you know, basically I'm going I'm to go get some stuff. The, the older brother, I don't know if you remember this, he doesn't love the father either. He just works a different plan to get the money and to get the stuff, right? And we know that because when the brother comes back, we see how he treats his son at the end of the parable. Um, essentially, he, he, essentially, he was coveting what the younger brother had. You got the father's stuff and didn't have to put up with the father, which means you don't love the father. And so religion does this. Religious people actually end up being jealous of people who have no relationship with God. They're trying to use God to get the stuff that other people have abandoned God for. And so essentially you don't realize how bad you are until you try to be good. You don't realize you're addicted until you try to stop. And Paul was like, the law showed me that that's who I was. The law showed me that I was that older brother. And Paul's saying the harder I tried to keep the law, the harder I tried to prove I was good, that I was like a worthy person, the more my coveting and jealousy and insecurity and self-righteousness flared up. And it turned me into a terrible person, again, that didn't love God. So, so again, he's like, I hope you see that, that the law is valuable, but it's not valuable to change you. It's valuable to show you that you are in need of 
changing. It's the diagnosis, it's not the cure. It's the x-ray, it's not the surgery. It prepares you for grace, but it does not do what only Jesus and his grace can. But it cannot heal us, it cannot change us, right? So number one, again, there's something that can't change us, the law, which leads me to my second and last point. There is someone who will change us. There is someone who will change us. We'll start in verse 14. It says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. No ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one who does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. Verse 21, so I dis- discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. Now, the nine verses I've just read you, are not only confusing, but some of the most hotly debated verses in the entire Bible. I don't know if you guys know that. Uh, And they're debated for this reason. Is Paul describing the Christian experience of struggling with sin, or is he describing someone who has not yet become a follower of Jesus, who is trying to obey God without the power of the Spirit, trying to obey the law while still being unreconciled to the God who gave the law. And there's some people on different sides of this that normally I just always want to be with. Um, uh, People like, um, and again, on both sides of this, right? People like Tim Keller, John Piper, Charles Spurgeon, I think it is describing a believer. Uh, At the same time, um, uh, friends of our church, Terry Virgo, Preston Sprinkle, uh, guys who ministered in our church, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Douglas Moo, uh, I think Paul is describing someone who is not yet a follower of Jesus. Uh, I am personally, so I'm going to, so real quick, what I want to do is, and this doesn't happen, I think the Bible is actually often clear. Uh, this is, is a tough one. Uh, I'm going to share um, what I think is going on here, but I'm going to say you could land on either side of this, and it does not change, um, it does not change anything theologically. It does not change what we believe about sanctification, for example, and I'll explain why, okay? So for a couple reasons, um, I think, I'm not persuaded Paul's describing the normal Christian life. I don't think this is a Christian wrestling with sin. And the reason for that is a couple reasons. The first is how um, uh, he describes himself here. In verse 14, he says that he is sold as a slave under sin. Now, now that idea of being enslaved to sin should sound familiar to you because I talked about it a lot in the two weeks we were in Romans 6. Uh, and in Romans 6, Paul teaches that when we put our faith in Jesus, um, right, when we, we, we used to be enslaved to sin, but that Jesus died to set us free from that sin. So Romans 6, verse 6 to 7, this is what Paul says. He says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body 
ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Romans 6.14, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law but under grace. So when it says in Romans uh, sorry, 7 verse 14 that he's sold as a slave to sin, it sounds like someone who's not yet become a follower of Jesus. It's not that he's struggling with sin. It's, it's, it's meant enslaved to sin. So I think Paul is describing himself pre-Christ. Um, some scholars say, you know, and again, some people might push back on this. They'll go, what kind of unbeliever delights in the law? That's one thing to point out. Like, man, only believers would delight in the law. And I would say a Pharisee would claim to delight in the law, right? Now, again, if you meet like, North Park Ned, and he's like, man, I'm about disobeying Jesus with everything I have life. I'm like, dude, you're, you're probably saved, okay? Uh, that's, a weird, that's a weird thing. Why would you want to do that right now? On the flip side, if you were to meet a first century Pharisee, he's like, man, I'm about the law. My entire life's about the law. I delight in the law. It's a little different than if you, does that make sense uh, contextually? Um, uh, all the Pharisees, Pharisees thought they were obeying the law. Um, Paul used to be Saul the Pharisee, and he thought he was serving God, on and on. All right, another reason I think Paul's describing himself pre-Christ is the context of these verses. Uh, they're preceded by Paul giving personal testimony about how he couldn't obey the law and how the commandment against covetousness destro- destroyed his self-righteousness, right? Like that mirror idea. Um, and someone who was self-righteous... He, 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 as, and someone who was self-righteous who has lost their righteousness would likely be miserable, Okay. So I know I'm not uh, obeying this, co- this, covet- this covenant commandment. I, I thought I had self-righteous. I thought I was righteous in of myself. I'm realizing that I'm not. And if you've been there before, it's painful. Self-awareness that you didn't pursue is painful. You ever get like hard feedback you didn't ask for? Even if it's true and could be helpful, it hurts. Never mind when the feedback's coming. It's almost like you're saying, it's almost like uh, if, if I was to say to Jackie, listen, um, my entire life is about serving you, and my entire life is about loving you, and, uh, and literally my, my time, my money, my money, my energy, every single thing I want to be about you. And she's like, you're actually like the worst husband ever, right? That would be even harder than just getting hard feedback in general. Go, hey, you can improve as a husband. Here's some things. I go, okay. Th- th- but the center of his life was claiming to obey the Old Testament law, so to find out that that wasn't happening would have been devastating. And I would, again, by the way, even secular people, whatever it is that you think you are, right, and then you find out you're not, it, it, it's hard. If you build your life on um, being an amazing athlete and you break your leg, it devastates you. One of the things that's been happening lately is if you build your life on I'm the most just person ever socially, and then anyone can look at your entire life last and you realize you're not, right, you fall apart. People fall apart quickly. I'm a terrible person. I have no heart for, ju- you know, uh, it, it, it is painful. Whatever you build your life on, when it is exposed, that you aren't fully that all the time, it, it is hard. And so it's very reasonable that Paul would be like, man, I, I, I hate myself right now. I'm not who I thought I was, and I, and I can't do, and I feel like I can't do anything about it. So I think Paul is saying, um, th- this used to be this way for me when I tried to obey the law apart from the Holy Spirit's power. And again, when you get in Romans 8, when Paul talks about the Spirit, I just think the life that's described in Romans 8 is not the life that's described in Romans 7, in my opinion. <clears throat> One important thing I want to say, though, 
Um, either way, whichever position you hold, again, it should not change anyone's theology of the gospel or having an orthodox view of sanctification. That it happens, that it, happens it will be done when you see Jesus face to face or he returns, and it is progressive, but it is happening, okay? Um, one quick biblical interpretation tip. When there is a passage that's difficult to interpret, we need to put it next to passages that are similar uh, and simpler to interpret when possible, right? So um, in view of the rest of the New Testament's teaching on sin and sanctification, I think it's important to clarify what this passage can't be teaching, okay? Here's what it, what it can't be saying. Um, what it can't mean, okay? So for example, if you think this is a believer, that's fine. But it, it, it can't be because you think it's impossible for a believer to ever experience victory over sin. Does that make sense? Like, if you're like, man, the life he's describing is everyday life of a Christian. That sounds miserable. <laughs> and, and it doesn't line up with, with, with what else we know, right? Paul told us um, how to fight sin in Romans 6, right? Consider yourself dead to sin. That makes no sense if you can't actually do that. Like, if you can't do anything to change, functionally change um, your character, um, then it just can't be saying that, right? Uh, Colossians says to put sin to death, which makes no sense um, if you can't actually do it. Ephesians says to take off the old man and put on the new man. Makes no sense if you can't do it. It's like, change your outfit. I only have one outfit. Change it, right? It's like, no, no, no. Like, you got to have another pair of clothes that you know you can put on. This means it is possible to change. We're commanded uh, to change. Now, on the flip side, if you interpret this passage and you think it's describing a person who is not yet a follower of Jesus, here is also what it cannot be saying. It cannot be because you think that a believer doesn't, can't struggle with sin or doesn't struggle with sin. First John says, if you claim to be without sin, the truth of God is not in you. Boom, roast it, okay? You can't go, man, I'm good, man, I don't sin anymore, I'm, I'm perfect. Jesus in the Lord's Prayer encourages the disciples to daily ask God for forgiveness, which makes no sense if you don't sin every day. All the commands I mentioned above about fighting sin that are given to believers that I, I said, you can't say there's no victory because he says there's a way to pursue it. Um, they make no sense if there's no sin to fight. Does that make sense? It's like he gave you a bunch of tips on how to play basketball. And you're like, actually, there's no game, right? Uh, there has to be a game or, or there's no point to those commands. So if you're, I just want to say this. If you're worried that if we say that this person in Romans 7 is not a believer, that we're kind of losing um, you know, progressive, progressive sanctification, or you're starting to think, this church thinks I need to be perfect, that's not the case. We still wrestle with sin over time. And there's other parts of the Bible where that's very clear. All right, Galatians 5, a passage that is similar to Romans 7 that everyone agrees on, uh, that agrees about, uh, agrees is a disciple of Jesus, Galatians 5, 16 to 18. It says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh, Verse 17, for the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So, so it's laying out there this idea that um, you're going to have desires. You just don't have to always act on them. That's what we see in Galatians 5. Regardless of whether this is describing a disciple of Jesus or not, in light of what we know about broader uh, New Testament teaching and how this chapter ends, here are some truths we can know for sure this morning. And I want to close with these uh, kind of mini subpoints. The first one is this. Disciples of Jesus are engaged in a battle inside of them. They are engaged in a battle inside of them. Um, again, there's this flesh versus spirit reality Galatians talks about. That you do want to do 
the right thing at times. There's another part of you that doesn't. That, that, that the difference between your strongest and deepest desires, the deepest desires that you'd obey Jesus, and there's moments where you have a stronger desire for something that looks very different. Um, when you become a follower of Jesus, in other words, your sinful desires don't go away completely. Okay? But we have the ability to say no to them increasingly and more powerfully. We can slowly but surely become like Jesus. But you need to know that part of you, your flesh, it's opposed to that. There's still a part of you that's like, man, I want to live like we used to live. It doesn't give up easy. Um, I thought this quote was really helpful. It says, it is quite important to expect a fight with our sinful nature. In fact, just as a wounded bear is more dangerous than a healthy and happy bear, our sinful natures become more stirred up and active because the new birth has mortally wounded it. When you actually try to put sin to death, you might think it's, it, it almost feels like there's more temptation than before or you're a lot more aware of it. Uh, the pandemic has really caused a lot of us to feel like we're losing the battle with sin that we had thought. We thought we was dead or we had scared off years ago. I've talked to a lot of you guys. You're like, man, I, there's this thing that I thought like I didn't really even wrestle with anymore. And now all of a sudden it feels back and very, very strong. I found I reverted to my, I reverted to my idols. I reverted to my functional saviors before I met Jesus in some tangible ways. The flesh was like it's back at it. It showed up like a flood. Things you've been able to say no to for years feel strong again. I want to say to you, man, be encouraged. Keep fighting. I want to encourage you. There is a battle. The fact that there is a battle doesn't disqualify you from being disciple. It proves you're a disciple. People who aren't disciples don't have battles internally. Right? They're like, I just do what I want to do. And, and I want, and, and, and you know, I, I always want to do what, do what I want to do with as little pain as possible and pushback as possible. Disciples of, of Jesus, um, uh, uh, disciples of Jesus will experience victory one day, though, because of Jesus. Let's look at our last verses to close out the chapter. Romans seven twenty four to twenty five. It says, "What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death?" Paul's like, "Man, I'm trying to do it on my own. I'm trying to obey God. I'm trying to live for Him. I'm trying to become the person that I want to be. I'm trying to become a person I want to be proud of." Who? But I can't, right? Verse 25 says, thanks be, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Um, you, you will experience victory. In the Christian life, Jesus and his empowering presence guarantee victory. It's slowly but surely happening. We've alluded to this a lot uh, throughout the history of our church. Um, it's kind of a big metaphor for the idea of the already but not yet, but I think it's, I still think it's helpful. And it's the idea of D-Day and V-Day. Uh, World War II, um, I actually just found out my grandfather fought at D-Day, had no idea. Um, uh, right, so D-Day is a day, uh, you know, Normandy, whole deal. Uh, it's the day, St. Brett Ryan, uh, it's the day where essentially it became impossible for uh, Germany to win the war, right? Uh, it became impossible. However, the war continued on for about another year and a half because they didn't want to give up, right? Uh, but, but at the end of the day, there was no chance. So there were still losses. There were people on the, on the victorious team post-V-Day before, sorry, post-D-Day before V-Day when the war actually ended who still died. 
And, and if you went, to the, went up to their families and said, hey, listen, they died, but we've already won, it wouldn't have been comforting. Might have even felt like pointless. In the same way, we'll have rough moments with sin where we feel like we have lost battles, but you need to know you will win the war, though battles may be lost or won in the meantime. Jesus' presence in us assures us of victory. And that means even on the darkest days in our battles with sin, we can find encouragement in him. So what I know for sure is there's still a battle. What I know is this victory is coming. And then the last thing I want to say about this passage is, is, is also the, the fact that Jesus not only will deliver us, but, 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 but he, he really will change us. Like we really can bear fruit for God. But it's different. Um, it's different than just like trying to change yourself, though, and like self-helping it and the law and rules. It's as you get close to your bridegroom, you will bear fruit. I know it might seem like a weird analogy, um, but, but it's true that through intimacy with him, we bear fruit. If you want to become like Jesus, you have to get close to Jesus, spend time with Jesus. Turn to him and let him love you out of your brokenness. Let him serve you as your husband, as your bridegroom. Be vulnerable with him. Let him into your heart and into your life. Surrender your will to him, your decisions to him, and see what he does. We have a, a new motivation to obey Jesus in a lot of these passages. The law says, do it, you're going to be in trouble. This is, no, I love him. He's, he's Mr. Perfect 2.0. He is so, so, so good to me. He is patient with me. He is gentle with me. He is committed to me. He isn't going anywhere. Not only does he lift the finger, he puts the thing on his back. He is with me and for me and changing me. And because I have been so passionately loved by this bridegroom, even though I could not live up to his standard of perfection, I love him in return. Obedience increasingly becomes something I want to do because I love him. Christianity is not like people peer pressuring you into doing stuff you don't want to do. That's not Christianity, that's religion. Christianity is I love my groom. I want to make, I want to please him. I want to make him happy. He's done so much for me. I'm so grateful to him. Where we go, uh, it's not, oh, man, I want to get in trouble. I want to do some bad stuff, right? Like, that's, that's like, by the way, that's like a, that's like practice for deconstruction. <laughs> if you want to see people leave the faith, tell them the faith is, we're going to make you do stuff you don't want to do, whether you like it or not, and we're going to judge you. Cool. The gospel is, Jesus, I, I want to give my life to you. What, what, what my community's done around me has consistently shown me how you loved me in spite of me and how you keep loving me in spite of me. And how you woo me to yourself through your love. And I go, whatever you want. My time, my energy, my money, my affection, my sexuality, my house, my, where I live, what I do, my job, my vocation, it's yours. What do you want? My husband, my king, what do you want from me? I will gladly give it to you. And there are moments when I forget how beautiful you are and how much you have loved me. There are days when I don't respect you. I'm not grateful for you. I lose sight of you. I forget the amazing price you paid for me, and I get selfish. But then 
people around me, again, they should be stirring me up to go, no, don't forget the groom. Don't forget <laughs> Jesus. And so what I'm gonna do right now is remember that groom, remember that Jesus by taking communion. I wanna call Marielle up to um, lead us into musical worship. Um, whenever I do marriage counseling, um, one of, I kind of just say, like within two sessions with a couple, I'll just be like, hey, listen, um, if you are not willing to take responsibility for yourself, this is a waste of time. If you're here for me to do like a, weird, like a really cheap version of litigation where I declare a winner, like a judge in a court of law, uh, this isn't gonna work. But if you're here to take responsibility for yourself and own your contribution to this, you can, you can really flourish here. Now here's the thing with Jesus, in your marriage with him, in your marriage with him, he actually could just point at you all day. He could go, hey man, can we, can we jump in for some counseling? Here's my bride. What a nightmare. Constant adultery, constant disrespect, constant not considering me, constant walking away from me, constant um, think, you know, um, assuming the worst about my motives, constant co taking advantage of me, constant, constant, constant. But you know what? I love her and I'm not giving up on her. And we, and, and we know that he went to the cross to say, I want to be with you forever and I don't want to leave you. <laughs> I'll never leave you or forsake you. Though it is your fault, I will take care of it. And so um, I want to take out your, uh, your bread. This feels like a little bit better than before. Not great, but it's, uh, I don't think it's plastic. But take out this element. I just want to pray a quick prayer of remembrance. Before I get the juice ready. Jesus, I, I thank you that you are more patient with me than I am with myself. I thank you that you're not a naive, stupid man, stupid husband, stupid spouse. Uh, you see the real us. You see our hearts. You see stuff our, our friends could never see, our spouses could never see, our kids could never see, those who know us the best could never see, the stuff that we could never see. We are more broken than we even know, but we really are infinitely more loved than we could ever ask or imagine. That's our relationship with our groom. You've covered our brokenness. You've taken away our shame. You've taken responsibility for our debts. And Jesus, I thank you. In Philippians it says that for the joy set before him, he went to the cross. And the joy was us. You already had a perfect relationship with the Father. You wanted your girl, you wanted your bride. You said, I'll pay any price to have her back. And so, Lord, I pray for the men and women in this room who maybe think that, yeah, you put up with us, you're perfect, so you'll never, like, kick us out, but you're a husband who is kind of annoyed. You, you give a side eye. You roll your eyes. You're, you're annoyed. You're, 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 you know, you're sighing all the time. Oh, are you kidding me again? What do you go, no, 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 no. It was for the joy set before me. I wanted you. I love you. I delight in you even at your worst, and I'm loving you out of your worst, and I'm not giving up on you. I adore you. I'm not annoyed with you. Thank you, Jesus, that you're that kind of groom who pays the price we could not pay. You died the death we, could, we, we deserve to die, and you rose again in victory. 
to reconcile us to you. Jesus, would you empower us? We're so thankful. Would you empower us to see you clearly this morning? Would you, would you help us want to want you? Would we be people who don't have to have their arms twisted to obey you? Would we be people who go, I love my spouse? It's in his, his name we pray. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and take the elements. Go ahead and stand and sing to our King.